About 25 years ago, Brielle and Kyrie Jackson were born prematurely at a hospital in central Massachusetts. When the twins were just a few weeks old, Brielle was losing her fight for life. She was only two pounds, I mean, uh, oh yeah, two pounds when she was born, and she was struggling to survive. Her sister Kyrie was born only three ounces heavier. But lying in the neighboring incubator, she was much stronger. She was thriving. But Brielle's breathing and heart rate were poor, and nothing the doctors tried did anything to make a difference. And her condition worsened at one point quite dramatically. The twins' mother, Heidi Jackson, told a newspaper she was turning colors. She was getting really worked up. Her heart rate continued to go up. She was getting the hiccups that were just causing more and more problems. You could tell she was just completely stressed out. And the medical workers were trying everything. They were bringing in specialists to try to help. And one of the nurses finally, running out of things to try, she remembered hearing about a technique, a technique that at that time was not being used in America called double bedding or co-bedding. In this process, twins and other multiple birth babies are put in the same crib, where, like in their mother's womb, they can lie close together. And so the nurse put Brielle in the incubator with Kyrie, who she hadn't seen since birth. To the amazement of everyone, Brielle showed improvement from the first moment she touched her sister. According to their mother, the nurse closed the door and Brielle snuggled up to Kyrie and she was just fine. She calmed right down. It was immediate. It was absolutely immediate. Brielle and Kyrie went home with their family when they were only two months old and it was just before Christmas. And when they left the hospital, they each weighed well over five pounds and they were both considered healthy. This week in our weekly connection, I'll share a photo from the, uh, the early time of their birth of um, Brielle and Kyrie. And in the photo, you're going to see Kyrie's arm protectively around her sister. This photo, you may remember it when you see it. It became pretty famous. It was called The Rescuing Hug, and it was in Life magazine and Reader's Digest and some other places. People were immediately drawn to this powerful image, showing this unspoken, very natural love between these two tiny sisters. The image inspired people as they saw the healing that can happen, even in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering with the warmth of another person nearby. You see, friends, we need one another on the journey. God's call on, on us, God's call on the church, it's, it's not a call to an easy life. I think sometimes we think it should be. I'm following God, it should be easy. It should be easy. Once I, once I agree to follow Jesus, I, I want to walk with God. I come to church. I shouldn't have these struggles. They should fall away. But you see, God created us into a world, a world that has this mystery of difficult situations. And friends, it's often in the most challenging of circumstances where we need others the most. And where we're, where we're needed where you're needed the most in the lives of others. 
it, it makes sense when I say it, right? It sounds obvious, but it's hard, I think, for us to hear sometimes that, in, especially in the church, that God doesn't promise that you're always going to be safe from the challenges, from the pain, from the struggle, and God doesn't promise that you'll go where you want to go or even get what you want to get. But what God does promise and God does offer to us is that we don't have to be alone in the midst of it. In each of our scripture lessons this morning, we see this interplay, the ways that God uses people to help. The ways that God uses others to help, sometimes just by being present. The opening words from Numbers that Rogers read for us, they paint a pretty bleak picture. And by the way, the book of Numbers gets a bad rap because everyone thinks it's all about what? Like numbers, right? Mathematics people like that, but the rest of the people might think that's kind of boring. But I will tell you that the detail, the humanness of the stories that we read in Numbers has great depth. This story is a great example of that. The, the, the opening of this, of this text says that the rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again. That phrase, the rabble among them, it's intriguing because it's describing this subset of people within the larger group, the rabble among them. We know these people, right? They're the people who, instead of looking for the positive or, or trying to encourage others, they, they play into the fears and anxieties that we already feel. They're feeling those fears and anxieties, but they play into them. They're the ones who, who might not say anything initially and might not even have a, uh, a solution, but, but once the meeting ends or the church ends and the parking lot meetings begin, they got a lot to say. They're the ones who tap into those fears and stir things up. They raise the heart rate. They raise the temperature in the room. And in this case, in this text, they're tapping into the communal anxiety of a long journey in the desert and the monotony and the exhaustion that the people are feeling. They're tapping into the stress of a people who are crying out. In the Psalms, they're crying out saying, how much longer? I think we all know a thing or two about this sort of exhaustion. It isn't just physical exhaustion, but the mental exhaustion that we've all been feeling during the past 18 or so months. We just want it to go away. You know, about a month into the pandemic, you know, it had just started. We'd been worshiping online. I was doing most of, of the work from my, from my office there and, and especially at worship time and looking in, I've shared before that little black dot, the camera. And I ran into someone and they said to me, you know, I don't know if you want feedback about church, but I would appreciate it if you stopped talking about the pandemic during worship. And I thought, well, that's odd. It's kind of what's going on in people's lives right now. It's what's going on in my life right now. And now, granted, little did I know <laughs> at that time that it would continue to keep impacting our lives, and perhaps this person didn't either. On some level, though, I could relate to them. I thought, well, maybe church can be a, a little window of time where we don't talk about it. And, and there were some weeks where I didn't, and where I didn't focus on what was going on in our lives. But, 
But I realized that I was playing into this desire, this longing, this need that we were all having for it, and we still have, for it to just go away. How many times have you said, or even heard someone else say, I'm just tired. I'm tired of the confusion. I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of the changing circumstances. I'm tired of the the division. I'm tired of making decisions. And so people are tired. And in their fatigue, they, like the rabble, Among the Israelites, they make decisions, decisions we all have to make, decisions that either draw a line in the sand creating divisions and and divisions that can then cause more pain, or decisions that seek a different way, a way toward healing, toward an invitation of God's Spirit into the midst. And so you see, for the Israelites, there's a great deal of confusion And they initially start giving in to that rabble. Our text says that they weep. They wept. Because that rabble tapped into not just their fears, but their longings, their desires for something different. And the pressure was too great. And Moses hears the weeping of these people. Thousands of people. He hears their desires for change. And he hears them say, essentially, that they're afraid and that they're tired. And so he goes to God. He goes to God, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but he's exasperated. He's exasperated. I can relate to Moses' exasperated prayer. I wonder if you can as well. His exasperated prayer where he essentially says, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do? The burden is on, on me is too great. The burden on these people is too great. Help! Help! And God's answer here is pretty powerful. God doesn't tell Moses to buck up. Now, it's interesting because before Moses goes to complain, our text says that God was pretty upset. God was upset with this rabble. But now there's kind of a shift because Moses comes, he honestly comes before God and says, what's up with this? What's going on? And God doesn't tell Moses at that moment that the people are wrong and they're complaining. That, you know, God's already said that God is angry and later God's going to kind of show it. It's, it's kind of rough. You can keep reading in numbers, but uh, it's going it's to happen. But in this moment, in this moment, God listens to Moses, God listens to the the exasperation, and God doesn't put more pressure on Moses. No, in the midst of this struggle, God tells Moses, go get some help. Go get some help. Go find some other people in the community, 70 of them. Go get them. Bring them together. He doesn't even tell him what he's going to do when he brings these people. He just says, go get them. So Moses goes out, he gathers the elders. Our text says that that once he gathers them, God took some of the spirit that was on Moses, some of that, that godness that was on Moses, and distributed the spirit among those others, the 70. Now two of them, two of them aren't there. Again, I love that our text says they were signed up. They were registered, it says. They were registered, but they didn't show up. 
They were outside of the gathering spot. It's sort of like they're out in the, you know, sidewalk still talking, having their breakfast because they were running a little late this morning. And so they're out there, and the Spirit still falls on them. Now, it's pretty powerful because God is using these, these 70, wherever they are, whether they followed all the instructions or not, whether they're perfect or not, they're not perfect, I can tell you that. He uses them all. God uses these people to walk alongside Moses. Moses, when he's at his lowest, his emptiest, his most despondent, but also to walk alongside all those other people, the people out in their tents who are standing at the doorways and weeping and saying, help. But they don't just help, they bring God's spirit with them because because God honors their presence, honors their willingness to help. And so they bring God's presence into the community more visibly to the others on the journey, to the others who are in the midst of their own struggles. God uses them. God uses them to build community, all for the sake of those who are gathered. In our second scripture lesson from this letter of James, James James, throughout his letter is trying to help the church understand how to be the church and how, how as Christians we can be followers and how we can live in community. And as is typical in this letter, James doesn't hold back. He asks the question, are any of you suffering? Then pray. But then he goes on a little bit later. Now, first of all, that's important, right? He says, if you're suffering, pray. There's an element there of, if you're suffering, do something. Do something. Pray. But then, he doesn't say, pray only by yourself. Instead of saying, go it alone, pray by yourself, help yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, James says, no, bring your burdens, those things that you're carrying, the suffering, the struggling, Bring them to others. Bring them to others. Share them with others. Let them help you. And specifically, let them pray for you. Let them pray with you. And to the leaders of the church, James says, you need to pray over those who are suffering. You need to pray with those who are struggling. You need to walk alongside You need to walk alongside those who are suffering and struggling. You need to be available, ready to help, ready to be there, and you need to pray with and for them. Friends, you're not meant to be alone on the journey. And especially, you're not meant to be alone when you're struggling, when you're grieving, when you're tired when you're worn down, when you're jaded, or like that rabble of Israelites, when you're done and you're hungry for something different. James recognizes that it is in and through our interdependence that God somehow seems to appear more vividly in our lives. Those elders that Moses gathered together, when you look at this text, they don't even really seem to do much other than show up. And even the two don't even show up to the right place. They show up, and the Holy Spirit works through them. 
works through them to show that God is present to these people, even in the midst of their struggle. This is our call. It's our call as a church. The call of James is a call to PCWS, a call to be a place and a people who walk alongside one another, who pray with one another and for one another, and who share our burdens with one another. God has given us fellow travelers on this journey. God has given us hands to hold and the warm embrace of familiar hugs. God has given us voices to harmonize with and and tears to share. God has given us a physical and a real and tangible way to survive in this difficult world. God has given us also, now listen to this, God has given us the gift of our need for one another. The gift of our need for one another. But God has also given us the gift of one another. God has given us partners in the struggle. And like those beautiful little twin babies together in the incubator, arm wrapped around the other, together, together, God meets us and we become unintimidated by those struggles, by those burdens. Together, we learn what it means to be a community of followers of Christ. Together, you strengthen one another. Together, you draw nearer to Christ. Together, you overcome your obstacles. Together, you walk this journey and experience healing. These things that I describe, these are the call of the church. This is the call of the church. This is the adventure we are invited to join. You see, Friends, the invitation we have in Christ is an invitation that includes, that includes the burdens and the struggles we carry. We don't ignore them when we walk through the doors. We don't put on the smile and pretend they don't exist anymore. Because the minute we do that, we stop being the church. You see, the invitation is to bring all of it, to bring it all to this place with the promise that we don't carry it alone. It's an invitation to fellowship, an invitation into living Christ's commandment that we love one another. This is the invitation and the vision of Christian community. Casseroles and cards are great, but Christian community is an invitation to be a place where we learn what it means to live the gospel, what it means to walk alongside others, what it means to share our story, to pray, to learn, to grow, to share our whole story. And we do this by, by studying scripture, by looking for our place in God's story by worshiping together, by taking our faith and putting it into action in the world, by accompanying one another on the journey, and by taking the risk of allowing others to walk with us, sharing glimpses of the Holy Spirit with one another. We learn by willing to be vulnerable, by willing to be vulnerable, by, by willing to pray with one another, by, by asking for help, by being willing to share the burdens of our life with others so that they can give us the gift of bringing their prayers 
before God on our behalf. We learn by learning how to help others on their faith journey, on their journey through life. Friends, take comfort in knowing that you're not alone, that, that you don't have to be alone. And I distinguish that because you can come to church for your whole life and be alone. It's possible. In fact, it happens far too often. As a pastor, I'll hear people say, I was suffering and nobody said a word. And I'll ask the question, did you tell anyone? It's hard to hear that, that we have to have some agency over our own suffering, but we do. It's hard to do. Silent suffering is something I used to carry a lot of burden for in the world. In fact, when I looked back at the materials I shared with the pastor nominating committee when, when they were calling me and one of the questions was something that you struggle with or something like that, and I've shared with them and I've shared repeatedly that silent suffering is something that pains me. And this, this um, in particular came to me because I used to judge people positively, meaning I would say, well, they look good. They can't have any problems in their life. Oh, they drive a very nice car. They must be very happy. And I would, I would put people into these categories of the people I thought needed prayer and the people I thought were doing just fine. Until one day, one of those people who I thought was doing just fine, again, they were good-looking, they were successful, they were smart, they were witty, all these characteristics that to me were indicators of doing all right, I found out later that they essentially cried themselves to sleep every night. This was in seminary. And that was a gut punch to me. And I've carried that for a long time since. But what I've realized is that, yes, there's a part of us that has to be open to the suffering of others. But there also needs to be initiative on, on our part when we're suffering to wave that white flag in some way. And so the church needs to, to make it easier for people to wave that white flag but we also individually need to take the initiative to be willing to be vulnerable. And that happens for different people at different times. The breaking point, I call it. The tipping point is a little more positive way. The tipping point of when we decide, all right, I need to share that thing I've been carrying. And so friends, when you struggle, we... We need to know that you've got siblings by your side. Siblings who are ready for you to call upon them. In a few moments, you're going to hear from Amy Malone about one of the ways that we're trying to make it easier. Easier to find others to walk alongside when, when you're struggling. She's going to share about one of these ways geared specifically toward people who are walking through grief. In a few weeks, we're also going to resume the availability of members of our prayer team, our Stephen ministers, who are ready to pray with people after worship or during the week. People with whom you can confidentially share the burdens you're carrying. Maybe verbalize them for the first time, and not just verbalize them, but then have someone pray with you. 
the burdens you're carrying that you don't have to carry alone. And there are going to be other ways for us to do this, to put our toes in the water, the healing water of this vulnerability. This, my friends, is the church. This is the church. And this, the church, is how God continues to bring God's presence into our midst. This fragile and delicate and sometimes messy gathering of the fellow wounded and the struggling. This is how God has mysteriously chosen to remind us that we are loved, that we are cared for, that we are seen. May we be stronger together and may we bring peace and healing to one another like those two babies together in that incubator. Friends, may we love each other and experience Christ's harvest and Christ's abundance in our lives and in our connection to one another. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.